Lily Flag Signal, Episode 6, Spires, Bells, and No Horses. I'm what you could call the world's worst vegetarian, in that I will break that vegetarianism if the correct bacon appears. In Huntsville, that bacon often comes in the form of the BLT sandwich at Dallas Mill Deli. They aren't paying me to say this, but it is relevant to today's story, because when I was going into their front door the first time, years ago, I noticed a plaque on the front of the building that caught my eye. It said, on this site in 1897, nothing happened. And I'm going to be honest, for the longest time, that's the only historical designation that I knew the qualifications for. There are those black plaques designating historic sites, the signs outside of individual houses and historic districts, and then, rarer than all of those, there are national historic landmarks. These are so rare, in fact, that Huntsville's downtown has only one, the Episcopal Church of the Nativity. That's the one downtown on Eustace with the Gothic architecture and large spire. The more I researched, the more I realized that talking about this one building would open the door to discussions on other topics in Huntsville's past, like Civil War legends, building reuse, equity and historic preservation, and General Beauregard writing some confusing instructions. And as for the church structure itself, there was a lot to learn too. But what do all these historical designations mean anyhow? And what makes Church of the Nativity Building so unique that it garnered National Historic Landmark status? If this is the second structure in the location and the first wasn't destroyed, where did that original building end up? Why are there little glass rods cemented in the walls of the bell tower? What's the mystery behind the church's missing bell? And were American soldiers really afraid to put their horses inside of the church? Flag Signal, a Huntsville history podcast where we love historical signs, intricate architecture, stained glass windows, and bell towers. In fact, if you haven't noticed, the show's theme song is a riff on the Westminster Chimes, a common melody played by clock towers, so it's sort of fitting that we're talking about a bell tower today. I had the privilege recently to get a personal tour through Huntsville's Episcopal Church of the Nativity, and on that tour, I learned that fun fact mentioned earlier, it's the only location downtown to hold the status of National Historic Landmark. There's a sign out front and everything. This sent me down a rabbit hole of sorts trying to figure out what all these historical designations mean. I've seen all sorts of different ones around. Historical markers, National Register of Historic Places, the Historic Districts, and of course now National Historic Landmarks. But what does all that mean? How does a location get one, and why, and who's in charge of it? Historical markers, usually the black signs with silver or gold letters you see all over town, are put up by a variety of groups. The most recent historical marker put up in town, as of this recording in November 2022, is for women's rights activist Alice Borman Baldridge. That one was erected by the Historic Huntsville Foundation. Other markers, of various shapes and sizes, lift themselves as being sponsored by the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Alabama Historical Association, Huntsville Public Schools, and more. I really love these markers because they allow people to take somewhat self-guided tours by just stopping at the markers they pass while walking around downtown. The city has an interactive map online that you can use to find markers around town. I'm also a fan of hmdb.org, the historical marker database, a searchable and crowdfunded collection of photos and text from markers all around the U.S. and Canada. It's good fun for road trips and also has over 190 markers listed for Madison County. And then you have the National Register of Historic Places. This list is technically run by the National Park Service. That's right, the same organization maintaining parts of Yellowstone, Gettysburg, and the Grand Canyon is also in charge of approving and tracking things like the official boundaries of Old Town's Historic District here in Huntsville. Whereas getting a historical marker put up in town requires permission from local authorities, this register is a national listing, so there are more hoops to go through. It's a multi-step process that involves the State Historic Preservation Office, evaluations, and lots of paperwork, 
But to me, the most important part is the final nomination form. In many cases, if I'm looking into a place's history, this nomination form is one of the first places I'll look for my research starting points. These forms contain all of the overview information on where the site is located, why it's being nominated, etc., along with very detailed descriptions of the physical structure and its historical significance, as well as, usually, photos of the inside and outside of the building. There are also historical districts registered on the National Register of Historic Places. In Huntsville, there are 10 of these. Twickenham, Edmonton Heights, Five Points, McThormar Acres, Old Town, the Lincoln, Lowe, Dallas, and Merrimack Mill Villages, and Alabama A&M University. All with the latter are primarily residential neighborhoods. There's overlap with regard to some of the historic buildings on the register, including homes being inside the districts. Like, the neighborhood can be declared a historic place or district, and then that home can be listed individually on the register as significant in its own right. There are 87 things listed on the register in Madison County, including districts, buildings, sites, and structures. In terms of historic district preservation, however, the rules vary in Huntsville with regard to how much you can change the outward appearance of your building. Having a property on the National Register doesn't inherently mean you can't modify the property to look modern, so essentially there's not anything legally stopping a person from wiping all historical details from their house, even if it's on the National Register, from their frequently asked questions. Quote, Under federal law, the listing of a property in the National Register places no restrictions on what non-federal owner may do with their property up to and including destruction, unless the property is involved in a project that receives federal assistance, usually funding or licensing slash permitting. End quote. It can get you kicked off the register, perhaps, but there's nothing technically stopping a person from unhistoricaling a building. To remedy that and preserve historic character in the downtown districts, Huntsville has its own rules regarding local historic preservation districts designated by the city council. So this is sort of a subset of the areas of the National Register, because it includes Twickenham, Alabama A&M University, Old Town, and Five Points. If you want to switch the exterior paint colors, add a fence, throw a ham radio antenna up, or replace the windows, for example, those changes have to be approved by the Huntsville Historic Preservation Commission. There are a group of experts in history and architecture who meet to review proposed alterations to the homes in the aforementioned four districts and make sure the changes maintain the historic character of the area. According to their website, for quote, any realty in any local historic preservation district designated by the Huntsville City Council, a certificate of appropriateness must be obtained for the commission, end quote. If you don't have that approval, they can have you undo the changes you made. National Historic Landmarks, um, one of which is a spotlight of this episode, are also designated by the National Park Service, but there are far fewer of these. To be listed as a National Historic Landmark, a place must be of national importance. For the register, it can be state or local importance. From the National Parks website, quote, A nationally significant property is of exceptional value to representing or illustrating an important theme in the history of the nation, end quote. They give a few examples, too, like how many communities will have old schools on the register, but that the Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas is a national historic landmark because pivotal events in the American school desegregation movement took place there. A little under 3% of places on the National Register of Historic Places are also considered historic landmarks. In fact, there are only six listed as being in Huntsville, with five of these being related to space travel and thus being located on Redstone Arsenal. In downtown, there's just one National Historic Landmark, and that's the Episcopal Church of the Nativity on Eustace Avenue. So, some backstory. I was fortunate enough to get a private tour of the church thanks to meeting Vicki Hinton at the Maple Hill Cemetery stroll. She attends and works at Nativity, and she was kind enough to invite me to tour the building and ask many, many questions. Prior to our conversation, I didn't even know that the building was considered a National Landmark or what that particular designation even meant. And until I toured the church for this episode, I'd never been inside before, and I honestly was unprepared for the sheer amount of woodwork and stained glass. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself by talking about the current structure. As old as this building is, it actually isn't the original Church of the Nativity building, and for a little while, there were actually two church buildings on this lot. The congregation itself first met in Huntsville in mid-December of 1842, when they were officially recognized by that diocese, the overarching body of the Episcopal Church. In February of the next year, they chose their official name as Nativity because that initial meeting was so close to Christmas. If you're not familiar with Christian beliefs or Latin root words, Christmas in the church is the celebration of Jesus' birth, and nativity means birth, particularly that of Jesus, so it makes sense. I actually found the newspaper article in which they announced the formation of the church. It was published New Year's Eve 1842 in the Huntsville newspaper The Democrat by George Byrne, the chairman, and J. Withers Clay, the secretary. Clay will come up again later in this episode. Now that they had a church congregation, they needed a church building. The first building for Nativity was completed in 1847, but they quickly outgrew it, and in 1856, work began on a larger building. That's only nine years between building constructions. If all this sounds expensive, that's because it was. According to a historical marker outside of Nativity, this second building cost $37,500 in 1847. I actually found the note in the May 27, 1846 edition of the Democrat about fundraising for the new church that said, quote, the Vestry of the Church of the Nativity return their grateful acknowledgments to the Episcopal Ladies' Sewing Society for the $510 derived from sales at their late fair, and also for the $197.90 received at the former fair, which has never been publicly acknowledged." End quote. At this point, there were now two structures on the corner of Green and Eustace, the old church from 1847 and the new one, which I'll describe in a moment. The first church wasn't just torn down, however. As noted on a white stone marker in the corner of the churchyard, this original structure was sold and relocated in 1878 to Lakeside Methodist Church, who at that time were located on Jefferson Avenue between Holmes and Lincoln. In her writings on the history of Lakeside, Margaret Lacey says that the bricks were purchased from Nativity for $700 and were hauled across town by Lakeside members in wagons. The historical marker for the original site of Lakeside Methodist states that the new-to-them brick building was dedicated in 1886 as construction took eight years. This building, along with being a place of worship, was also a hub of community activities for Black Huntsvillians. The first city-funded school for Black students was housed in the basement of this church building. Principals included Henry Binford and Charles Henley. They ran the Huntsville Journal and the Huntsville Gazette, respectively, the latter of which was the highlight of our newspapers episode a few weeks ago. This building was also home to Huntsville's first public library for Black citizens, started by Dulcina DeBerry in 1940. In the 1960s, however, the Lakeside Methodist congregation moved to their current location on Meridian Street. The historical marker attributes this move to urban renewal programs, and there's a lot to be said regarding racial motivations in redistricting, zoning, and even historic preservation. As for the building itself, the historic marker states merely that, quote, the building on this site was destroyed by fire, and many items, including church records, stained glass windows, cornerstones, and a chandelier, were lost, end quote. Ms. Lacey's writing about her church phrases this way. Quote, the property on Jefferson was put up for sale, but before the property was sold, an arsonist destroyed our beloved landmark. Some very important and valuable articles were consumed in the fire. End quote. The site is now a parking lot beside an apartment complex. In its nomination form for national landmark status, the current building for Nativity is listed as, quote, among the country's least altered and most intact examples of the work of the noted ecclesiological architect Frank Wills. This, of course, presents two questions. What does that big word mean? and who was Frank Wills. Ecclesiological, broadly, means the study of the church, and when applied to architecture, it's a distinctive style. The idea is that the church's design should be a reflection of the reverence and sanctity the congregation holds for the God they're worshiping. 
In other words, impressive and awe-inspiring architecture in which to worship impressive and awe-inspiring deity. It also took a shameful number of times for me to get that pronunciation right on ecclesiological. As for Frank Wills, ecclesiological architecture was his jam. Originally from Essex, England, he and his business partner Henry Dudley were described in Nativity's National Register submission as being, quote, among those who stood at the fountainhead of the Gothic Revival movement in American religious architecture, end quote. Wills wrote a book in 1850 called Ancient English Ecclesiastical Architecture, in which he talked about how medieval architecture styles could be used in the U.S., and he was really influential in spreading Gothic Revival architecture throughout the country. Think towers, intricate trims, steep roofs, and, probably most recognizable, pointy arches and doors and stained glass windows. If you've seen Huntsville's Church of the Nativity, you know what I'm talking about. But how did a trend-setting British architect get involved in our story? Nativity's minister from 1847 to 1859, Henry Lay, visited Mobile and saw the Trinity Episcopal Church under construction there and loved the design. That building was, you guessed it, designed by Wills and Dudley, so Lay asked their firm to draw up plans for a new church to be built next to the old one. There was some back and forth with the local builder not being familiar with some of the nuances of Gothic architecture construction and outside help having to come into town, and then in 1857, two years before the completion of the church building, Frank Wills passed away and Henry Dudley had to take over advising and consulting on the project. Honestly, given how much of the project sounds like it was led by Dudley and not Wills, I feel bad that the official listings for the church's architectural significance focused so much on just Wills. Like the National Historic Landmark Forum lists its significant person as only Frank Wills. Hashtag justice for Dudley. That spire on top of Nativity is an integral part of our downtown skyline. Just as much as the Russell Erskine Hotel, the Times Building, the Space Age Courthouse that I love but everyone else seems to hate. When I'm looking at historic maps downtown with an aerial view, that spire is what I look for to get oriented. I was going to try to describe Nativity's appearance, but the write-up in the 1859 Huntsville Directory by W.P. Mills says it all. Quote, The Episcopal Church is a splendid specimen of Gothic architecture. The building consists of nave, with aisles, chancel, vestry, and organ chamber. The length inside is 104 feet width of nave and aisle 50 feet, height of tower and spire 151 feet. The chancel is lighted by three lancet windows of beautifully stained glass, with figures descriptive of biblical intent. The aisles and nave are lighted by windows of tracery of various description. There's a tower on the northwest corner. It is in two stages, flanked with buttresses while the spire is octagonal and broached. The interior roof is open, with timbers exposed and paneled. The entrance is through the west end of the nave and tower, it's calculated that the church will accommodate 600 persons. The late Frank Wills Esquire of New York is the designer of the edifice and Mr. Hugh Moore of Huntsville, the builder. End quote. Hashtag justice for Dudley. One thing that struck me was how much dark stained wood there is inside the church. The exterior walls are plaster, but the floors, ceilings, and columns are all dark stained wood. From the National Register nomination paperwork. Quote, the exposed interior wood is oak, presently with a dark stain and varnish. Some scratched places beneath later paint on the inner face of the east bell tower doors indicates a golden oak natural finish, and it would not be surprising to find that all the interior wood might originally have been this lighter and brighter finish, with the dark finish coming in with the aging of the varnish and or darker stain in the late Victorian period. End quote. Ah, those pesky late Victorians again. If that's the case, I'm curious what churchgoers back then thought the first time they walked in to see the newly darkened wood as it's odd to think about how things we consider to be historic were once new and different. It's generally impressive how much of the building is original, though. According to the registration for the National Register, the intricately carved wooden columns, pews, marble-backed pismal font, front door, and nearly all of the floor are original. 
There are also over a dozen stained glass windows, each intricately depicting symbols or stories from Christian tradition. There's nothing wrong with a good reproduction, as we're about to discuss, but when it comes to being added to a national list of landmarks, it certainly helps that so much of the church dates directly back to the 1850s. Sometimes, though, you can't not replace some parts of historic buildings. Damage, deterioration, poor construction from the first time around, all sorts of things happen that you can't predict. And you know how I said earlier that there are rules regarding maintaining the historic character of a place? Nativity had to practice just that in the 1950s, prior to the establishment of the Historic Commission in 1972, and it did it so well that I bet you couldn't tell from looking that the spire isn't in fact original. From the National Register paperwork, quote, In 1956, it was observed after a storm that the wood frame spire was noticeably leaning. An investigation revealed heavy insect damage throughout, coupled with some rot. In 1956 and 1957, the spire was carefully replicated, with the exception of the cross, and rebuilt. End quote. In doing this, they built a steel form for the tower that's separate from the brick to reduce further strain on the original structure, then recreated the outside of the spire to look the same as it had pre-wind damage. The only difference in appearance was the cross on top, and apparently the previous one was more ornate. When the damage was noticed, the spire itself had turned 18 inches off of square. It twisted a full foot and a half. This wasn't the only issue with the spire, though. In 1988, they realized the top part of the brick tower was, quote, on the verge of collapse, end quote, and had to restabilize it with special mortar. To make sure any further twisting of the spire would be caught before a major structural failure, the repairs included a really clever system to give warning of any future structural twisting. There are eight small glass rods that have been cemented at their top and bottom to various spots around the walls of the tower. If any shifting occurs between where the upper and lower parts of the rods are attached, the glass will break. Volunteers with the church go up the stairs into the tower every few months to check that the rods are intact, and if they are, cool. No danger. That bell in the tower has its own story, too. The one you hear ringing out over downtown is not, in fact, the original bell to the building, but a replacement acquired in the 1860s. Where's the original? I'd love to tell you, but I don't know. Something really nice about studying the history of nativity is that much of it is already well documented. You'll probably hear me mention Dr. Frances Roberts on this show before. She's a local historian who did a lot of research on downtown Huntsville. Dr. Roberts was also a member of nativity, and she's responsible for many of the historic documents telling the history of the church. However, even she could never find what happened to the original bell after it left the church's grounds. Here's what we do know. In spring of 1862, General Beauregard requested metal be donated for the Confederate war effort. On March 8, 1861, he sent the following letter out to be published in Southern newspapers. Note that he specifically mentions church bells multiple times. This will be funny later. Quote, To the planters of the Mississippi Valley, More than once a people fighting with an enemy less ruthless than years, for imperiled rights not more dear and sacred than yours, for homes and a land not more worthy or resolute and inconquerable men than yours, and for interests of a less magnitude than you have now at stake, have not hesitated to melt and mold into cannon the precious bells surmounting their houses of God, which is called generations of prayer. The priesthood have ever sanctioned and consecrated the conversation, in the hour of our nation's need, as one holy and acceptable in the sight of God. We want cannons as greatly as any people, whoever, as history tells you, melted their church bells to supply them. And I, your general, entrusted with your command of the army embodied of your son, your kinsmen, and your neighbors, do now call on you to send your plantation bells to the nearest railroad depot, subject to my order, to be melted into cannon for the defense of your plantations. Who will not cheerfully and promptly send me his bells under such circumstances? 
be of good cheer, but time is precious. End quote. Ew. Newspapers from March and April of 1862 in Huntsville are somewhat sparse, but I was able to find other cases published of church bell donations. In the Memphis Daily Appeal, for example, on April 1st of 1862, there was an announcement from the Methodist Church there that, quote, In view of the recent action of the members and friends of said church, we hereby tender to General Beauregard its bell for the use and benefit of the Confederate States. End quote. The same newspaper, four days later, published a listing of five other Tennessee and Alabama churches that were donating bells. This was a thing. The timeline on this was quite short for Huntsvillians, too, since Beauregard asked for medal on March 8th of 1862, and the city was reclaimed by the Union on April 11th of that year. The timing of all this was unfortunate for another reason, too. On March 30th, 1862, General Beauregard sent the following message to a man in Memphis regarding the offer to donate his church's bell. Quote, your letter of the 22nd instant offering me, for the use of the Confederate States, the bell of the First Baptist Church has been received. I have the assurance from a number of persons that the planters will all furnish me their bells, and relying upon this promise, I have declined the offer of many churches to furnish me theirs also." End quote. So all the aforementioned churches sent in their bells before they could get the news from Beauregard that he didn't want church bells to be donated. After his first letter, though addressed to farmers, explicitly mentioned church bells multiple times. Oops. An extant example of a cannon that was presumably made from bells of some sort can be found at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. But as for the Huntsville church bells, there are varying claims as to where these church bells went, but no definitive answer. The June 2008 edition of Old Huntsville claims that the bells from downtown were sent to Holly Springs, Mississippi, then melted, turned into cannons, and sent back to Huntsville. But I couldn't find any sources for that. Also, that article has the year wrong for when the bells were sent, 1861 versus 1862, and the timing does sort of make a difference here. What I do know is that many bells weren't ever melted down at all. For example, there's a short video from the Vermont Historical Society about a church bell in Morrisville, Vermont that was part of a stockpile of bells brought up from New Orleans after the Union took control of that city late April 1862, and then auctioned it off to churches. They specifically credit Major General Benjamin Butler for his batch of bells, which is particularly funny since I happened to mention him in the newspaper episode two weeks ago when a randomly selected newspaper edition had two columns of write-up on him. Anyhow, that auction took place July 30th of 1892 and had over 400 bells. The auction made over $30,000. This was only four months after the initial call for bells went out. All this to say, if the Huntsville church bells weren't melted, they could be sitting in another church's steeple somewhere else in the U.S. right now. If I had the shipping information from the Huntsville train depot in March and April of 1862, the paperwork from these various New England bell auctions, and a solid description of the original nativity bell, I could try to find it, but I guess some things are just lost to history. There's another Civil War era story about the church, and I want to share it with some disclaimers. During the Union's occupation of Huntsville during the war, American officers resided in residents' homes while the soldiers camped throughout downtown. They needed somewhere to keep their horses, since Huntsville didn't have enough spare room in its various barns and stables to accommodate them, so churches and other buildings were commandeered. The legend is that the American soldier refused to take the horses into nativity, though, due to it having the words, Reverence My Sanctuary, written over the door. I was able to trace the story back to an article in Huntsville Times in 1950 that says, quote, During the occupation by Union soldiers, a non-commissioned officer was instructed to seize the church and use it as a stable. When the force arrived to take possession, Dr. Bannister brought it to an abrupt halt before the door. Above the door were inscribed on marble the words, Reverence My Sanctuary. When that inscription was reported to the commanding officer, he ordered that the church not be molested. End quote. 
Dr. Bannister in this story is John Bannister, church rector at the time. That story in the Times was written by a Reverend Dale Miller, who was doing a series on historic churches in Huntsville. Unfortunately, he didn't cite any sources or otherwise explain how he knew what Dr. Bannister was doing 90 years prior. So while I cannot bring you a primary source on the matter, here's what I can prove. One, General Ornsby Mitchell and his troops did in fact come to Huntsville in April 1862 and occupy the city, and American officers resided in the homes of local citizens. If you ever want a firsthand read on the life in Huntsville during the Civil War from a very pro-Confederacy woman, check out Mary Jane Chaddock's diary. She lived in town throughout the entire war and documented much of her daily goings-on, and there's a typed version of some of her writings available for free on Duke's website. Number two. It does in fact say reference my sanctuary in the stone above the door in very fancy lettering, so I can see how that could be imposing. Number three. Those are the original floors and pews in the church building, meaning they weren't destroyed or drastically damaged during the war. That would be a pretty impossible feat if there are a bunch of horses and soldiers hanging out in there, especially if Mary Jane Jaddick's diary can be trusted with regard to the rowdiness of the American soldiers. Number four. At least one of the founding members of the Nativity was very pro-Confederacy at the time. J. Withers Clay, the aforementioned secretary of the founding congregation of Nativity in 1842? Well, during the Civil War, he was actually the editor of a local newspaper called the Daily Huntsville Confederate. No bonus points for guessing the political leanings of that publication, but it stands to reason that if any of the church elders were supportive enough of the Confederacy to run a newspaper relaying information to its supporters, they'd also be proactive about trying to keep American soldiers out of the building. However, the soldiers had to go somewhere, so... Number five. They ended up at First United Methodist Church, a block down the hill, where a fire got out of control and burned the building to the ground. So I have no solid proof that the reverence my sanctuary sign kept the army from going into nativity and possibly saved it from being accidentally burned, but it seems plausible. While it may have been horseless, nativity wasn't bellless for long though, with another one installed in 1866. According to the cast inscription on the bell, this one was made in 1865 in Sheffield, England. This second bell is the one that still hangs in the tower, though it's no longer rung in the traditional way. In 1992, the wooden harness that held and swung the bell cracked, meaning it wasn't ringing properly when the rope was pulled from below. Fun fact for anyone who has never tried to ring an old church bell, it can take your full body weight on that rope to get the bell to ring. This cracking of the harness led to the installation of a remote-operated striker. The new ringing system uses a small hammer to strike the outside of the bell twice per ring. This simulates the sound of the clapper hitting one side of the bell hard, and then the second side more softly as the bell swings back. Bell tower technology is surprisingly cool. I also saw a photo of the clapper, that metal bit dangling inside the bell that makes noise when it strikes, and how it had become practically squared off from years of hitting the side of the bell. I really enjoyed touring and researching Nativity for this episode, because its story is one of building reuse, preservation, and repair while maintaining its original character. With all this talk of preservation, landmarks, historic districts, and the like, it's important to remember that we in the present day play a vital role in saving history and its artifacts and locations for future generations. It's an unfortunate truth that not every building can or should be saved, be it due to neglect, cost, vandalism, or the equity issues surrounding preservation, but that doesn't mean it isn't worth trying to preserve and share the history and importance of the places we love, even when those places are not themselves intact anymore. If you want to see the Church of the Nativity for yourself and marvel at all the cool stained glass and woodwork, look into the tours they offer every month. Just because I've talked about a lot of the history here, that doesn't mean you've gotten the full experience, as there's just something about hearing information on a tour while standing in the place being described. You can visit the Church of the Nativity's website for the scheduled tours, or check out their Instagram at nativityhsv. As a sort of housekeeping note, we're almost at the end of the first season of Lily Flag Signal. 
I'll be taking a little over a month off to do more research, celebrate my birthday, and work on a few projects and collaborations. There will also be a surprise special episode coming in December. I've been calling it my masterpiece. In the meantime, I'll still be posting every day or so to the show's Instagram page, Lily Flag Podcast, 2Gs and Flag, and that's where to look for announcements on upcoming things related to Lily Flag Signal. For a show transcript and honestly far less frequent updates, check out our website at lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com. Still 2Gs and Flag. Always 2Gs and Flag. Until next time, read some historical markers, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you soon.